Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Uh, good morning. Welcome. If we haven't been before, my name's Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at Beacon. I'm so glad you guys are here as we continue our series that we are calling Training Wheels. And so this whole series has been actually about losing the training wheels, uh, where we're understanding that the Christian faith is something that we should be constantly growing and constantly moving toward maturity. And while training wheels are super helpful early on, we don't want to stay in this place where we need training wheels. We want to be moving forward in our faith. And this morning, we're actually going to talk about uh, this idea of, of moving beyond recreation, Moving beyond recreation, uh, my wife and I actually enjoy bike riding. These are our bikes, so that, that one's mine. That's my wife's bike right there. Uh, and uh, every so often, like if they're on the back of my car or something, somebody will ask me, like, oh, do you ride? And I never really know how to answer that question because I know what they mean. They're like, you know, do you compete? Do you, like, go out for, like, 100-mile bike rides? Do you do, like, crazy downhill mountain biking stuff, which I do none of. I do, like, simple recreational bike riding. Like, my wife and I will take our bikes out east and, like, bike to a couple wineries. We'll bike around town or something like that. And, and for us, it's, it's purely recreation. It's something, like, we'll pull out our bikes at times when it's convenient, when we feel like they're going to add something to our quality of life, and then they go back in storage where they spend most of their time. And in fact, even though, I, as you can see, I do not have training wheels on my bike, most of the bike riding that I do would be unhindered if I had training wheels. Like, I'm not a serious rider. Like, I just kind of, like, cruise around. In fact, training wheels sounds like a nice idea because then I don't have to balance my bike. And... Uh, but I'm afraid that for many Christians today, they have a, a recreational approach to their Christian faith. A recreational approach where, where it's something that they kind of like pull out occasionally, maybe on Christmas and Easter when it's convenient for them, when they feel like it's going to add a little value to their lives. And, and then, you know, the rest of the time, it just kind of goes back into storage to reappear. Uh, now, I know, of course, that this is none of you because it's Sunday and you're here and it is neither Christmas nor Easter. So nice job. Uh, <laughs> But, but I still think that even for us, as we, we are continuing our faith journey, we can be slowed down or, or even stalled along the way when, when we have this idea that, you know, we're getting everything we want out of our Christian faith. We don't, we don't really need to go any further. Like, we don't need to remove the training wheels because what's the point? I'm already getting everything I want and expect out of my faith. And, and it actually betrays kind of an underlying fundamental flaw that we can have when we approach the Christian faith. 
an underlying fundamental flaw. Last week, I went and saw Doctor Strange with my wife. Anybody see Doctor Strange yet? It was, it was a fun one, right? It was visually, it was just like stunning. Uh, but the movie was cool too. And uh, without giving too much away, there's uh, this doctor who, uh, his name is actually Doctor Strange, and he's failed by Western medicine. He goes to Kathmandu in, in search of healing. And he, he finds this mystic who has this, is kind of tapped into this power that has the potential to bring him healing. He becomes a student of this, this guru. And at one point in the movie, he's talking to uh, one of the other students. And this other student, this character, he says to him, like, hey, we, we all come here. We all come here because we're wounded in need of healing. And I heard that. I'm like, man, that is such a, such a good picture of Christianity. We all come here because we are in some way wounded and we, we're in need of healing. I mean, every one of us is here because we've realized that we have some, some deep wounds and we need a savior. We need somebody to save us. Like, that is why we all come here. But then there's this other point in the movie where Dr. Strange is talking to the guru they, they call the Ancient One. And, and the Ancient One says to him, says to Dr. Strange that his arrogance, his arrogance is blinding him to a deeper truth, a deeper reality, which is, it's not about you. <laughs> See, Dr. Strange, once he had tapped into this power, he, he could have, like some others had, he could have taken that power and used it to heal himself and then just go back to life as normal and, and kind of use it to his own advantage. Uh, but the, this ancient one tells him, hey, there's, there's something more. It's not about you. In fact, you can tap into this power and you could use it to do so much good, to bring so much healing and hope and restoration in the world. And I thought, man, that is also such a good picture of Christianity. This understanding that it's not about me. See, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we can become so fixated on what we want God to do for us that we miss out on what God wants to do in us and through us. You can become so fixated on, God, God, I need you to do this for me. I need you to give me this. I need you to fix this for me. I need you to take this away. I need you to bring this into my life. And we're constantly looking for these things we want God to do for us that we can completely miss out on these things that God wants to do in us and, and through us. Today we're going to be looking at a passage in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to James chapter 3, because James kind of echoes this, this same idea. He, he says that there is a deeper truth. He calls it a, a wisdom from heaven, this heavenly wisdom that essentially says, hey, hey Trevor, it's, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. There is more. And he contrasts this heavenly wisdom with like this worldly, earthly wisdom. And, and he tries to build into us this idea that, hey, if you, you can understand this heavenly wisdom, if you can understand this, it will, it will unleash you. It will liberate you. It will free you to, to not just live for yourself, but to, to not just have great things done for you, but to have great things done through you. So we're in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, James begins by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? Kind of calls this out. He's like, hey, hey, you think you're wise? Who's wise and understanding among you? He says, let them show it. So, so this is interesting. He says, let them show it. He says, wisdom isn't just some, some nebulous thing. It's not some like 
you know, abstract idea that's unseen and intangible. He says, wisdom is something you could see. He says, let them show it. Let them show it by their prosperous life, right? No. He says, let them show it by their business savvy. <laughs> let them show it by all the good advice that they give. And he says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. He says, there's, there's two, two things that are kind of the markers of this heavenly wisdom. He says that there's, there's a good life, a good life full of good deeds. And if you read through the rest of James, you kind of get a sense of what the deeds are that he has in mind. Like James says that, that like true religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress and like protecting yourself from being corrupted by the world. And he, he talks about clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. And you know, he, he's saying, if, if you have a life that's kind of filled with these good deeds, and the second thing is if you have humility, he says that's a sign that you're living in this, this heavenly wisdom. But then he changes gears, and he begins to talk about what the worldly wisdom looks like. And he unpacks that for us in verse 14. He says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, unquote, wisdom doesn't come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. In here, he kind of tells us three things about this earthly wisdom. He tells us the essence of this earthly wisdom, tells us the sources of this earthly wisdom, and he tells us the effects of this earthly wisdom. He starts with the essence of it, and he says something that I find kind of surprising. Like, when you think about wisdom, what do you think about? Like, where do you think the, the essence of wisdom would be found? Because for me personally, I would think it would be found in the mind. Like, if you're, you want to understand wisdom, you would, you'd go to the mind. But James actually begins with the heart. And he says, at the core, the essence of wisdom, it begins as a, an issue of the heart. And he says, if, if, you have, or if you're harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, that's a mark of this worldly wisdom. It's the essence of this worldly wisdom. You have bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy is, is the desire the desire to have. It's like, I, I desire to have this. And, and then you have selfish ambition, which is, I aspire to be this. I desire to have this. I aspire to be this. And the, and the, common, the common thread between both of them is me, right? It's, it's all about me. It's, I, I want this for, for me. I desire to be this for, for me. It's selfishness at the core. James says that this is the essence of earthly wisdom. The essence of it is it's, it's all about me. The essence of it is that I am at the center of my heart's affections. I am at the center of my heart's affections. That's the essence of this worldly wisdom. And then he tells us about the, the sources of this worldly wisdom. And it's not one source. It's actually three sources. He says, first of all, it's earthly in the sense that it's, it's worldly. It comes not from the, the realm of heaven, but it comes from the realm of this world. It comes from the culture of this world. All the, the cultures of the, the world are all telling us the same thing, that, hey, first and foremost, you need to worry about you, right? From a, a young age, you're told that you are the only one who's going to look out for you. You need to be responsible for you. You need to be at the center of your heart's affections. Your attention needs to be first and foremost on 
on you. Trevor, you are responsible for you. And then Trevor goes to school as a young kid, and, and Trevor realizes, you know what? Nobody else is going to get an A for Trevor. Trevor has to get his own A, and Trevor can't get an A for anybody else. And, and all along the way, we're, we're kind of told, like, hey, what you need to do is you need to make sure you're looking out for you, taking care of you. You need to be at the center of your heart's affections. This is what the world is telling us. But then he says it's also unspiritual. And the, or the word that he uses here for unspiritual, it's not just uh, unspiritual in kind of like a general sense. It's talking about the unspiritual part of us. Like uh, another way of talking about this is the flesh. In the Bible, it talks about the, the flesh. That's like the fallen part, the fallen, broken part of our human selves. And the flesh as well is telling me that, you know, Trevor, you need to Worry about you first and foremost, right? You, you look at a young kid and, you know, like a toddler. You never have to teach a toddler how to be selfish, do you? Right? You have to teach them how to share. You have to teach them how to be kind. But you never have to teach them how to be selfish. It's like it's in our flesh from birth. We kind of have this with us. And, and then thirdly, he says, there's these demonic forces as well. That, that there's spiritual forces that are also whispering this in our ear, like, hey, Trevor, you need to be at the center of your heart's affections because nobody else is going to put you at the center of their affections. You need to worry about you. And, and so we have all three of these. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil all in agreement saying, hey, hey, you need to be at the center of your heart's affections. And, and the reason this is so important to, uh, to, to think about and observe is that if this is true, if this is true, that there is a wisdom from the, the world, a worldly wisdom, that we've had the, the world around us, the culture around us, we've had our flesh, and we've had these spiritual forces all telling us since the day we were born, if all of these things have been saying this, this worldly wisdom is the truth from the, the day we were born, then if there is another wisdom, if there is a heavenly wisdom, it is probably going to feel wrong. <laughs> it's going to feel unwise. It's even going to feel foolish at times. Uh, on the, the summer, we take our kids on uh, these short-term mission trips to do service projects in different places, and there's a, a mission training beforehand, and they, st they spend a day learning about culture and what it's like to be in a different culture, and one of the things that they had to do is they had to eat fried grasshoppers and fried grubs. Which, of course, in other parts of the world is a delicacy. Like, this is something that people treasure. But, but for us, we're like, that is, that is crazy. <laughs> Why would you eat that? I mean, like, I can understand, like, if there was nothing else to eat, like, you're, you're about to die, then you could eat this. But to, like, actually strive to eat this, this is crazy. We would actually say this is foolish, right? It, it's, it's the same thing. Like, imagine if, if the difference between two worldly cultures could be enough that when you're looking from one to the other, you could look at things and say, like, that's, that's crazy, that seems foolish. Then how much more so when we're coming from this worldly wisdom, this worldly culture, and we're looking at the culture of heaven, the, the wisdom of heaven, how much more so would we look at some of those things and say, that's crazy. <laughs> that seems just downright foolish. This is, this is important to note because as James, in a minute, when James gets into what worldly, or heavenly wisdom looks like, some of it is going to just feel wrong. <laughs> Before we get into that, the, the third thing he talks about here is the effects of worldly wisdom, the effects of worldly wisdom. He says, it brings about disorder in every human practice. 
disorder and all, and all sorts of evil. And, and we can kind of see this, how selfish ambition and envy bring about disorder. You know, you just look at the, the collapse of the housing market in 2008. You see how like a handful of people fueled by selfish ambition were able to bring about disorder, bring about chaos on like a macro level, right? But it, it doesn't have to be this like widespread, full-fledged like chaos around the globe. It can even just be the, the smallest thing. See, disorder, disorder is just when something's out of place, right? It's just not working properly. This, disorder can be something as small as just, just a word. Just like that biting word that comes out where there, there should have been mercy and compassion. It's out of place. And it comes out and we say, oh, where did that come from? <laughs> or, or it could be that complaint that comes out when we really should just be grateful and we should be thankful. And, and we look back and we're like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or, or you know, disorder can happen when, when somebody cr like critiques or criticizes you. And all of a sudden, like your mind just goes into like this scramble. And you're like, how dare they say this? And even if you don't retaliate, but you want to defend yourself and everything. And there's just this disorder that kind of comes in our mind. All of this comes from that, that same root where I am at the center of my heart's affections. If I am the thing that I value most, if I am the thing that I care about most, then if you mess with that, if you criticize that, if you push that around, if you offend that, if you take advantage of that, my heart is going like to come out like a, a mama bear protecting her cubs. <laughs> and it's going to try and defend me. It's going to try and, and retaliate. And it's going to try to get vengeance. Because if our heart is fixated on us, if we're at the center of our heart's affections, our heart is going to protect us. And we can't, we cannot insulate ourselves from these things happening. They're going to happen. People are going to take advantage. People are going to offend us. People are going to criticize us. So what's going to happen when they do that? How are we going to respond? It depends where the affections of our heart are centered. James then switches gears. And now he talks about what heavenly wisdom looks like. As I warned you before, this will feel wrong. <laughs> Don't be surprised. This is not me. This is what James says. Also, don't make any assumptions that I am any good at any of this. I'm just getting that out there in advance. All right, look at verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Uh, this idea of pure, this is, this is a, a, an idea that then extends to everything else that he's going to say. Pure, not just meaning clean, but meaning singular. Pure in the sense that, like, pure gold is only gold. There's nothing else in it. It's undivided. It is completely gold. So it's, first of all, pure. And this uh, applies to everything else he's going to say. It says, then it is peace-loving. Not just peaceful. Peace-loving. Imagine loving peace. Imagine craving peace. Like, you desire peace. Like, you have a passion for peace. Imagine, imagine loving peace more than your own comfort. Or, or what would, look, would it look like to love peace more than your, your own convenience? Or, or spouses, husbands, wives, what would it look like to love peace more than being right? That one wasn't a rhetorical question. I'm genuinely curious. What would it look like to love peace more than being right? Because I can't imagine what that looks like. I love being right. Uh, but to love peace more than these things, what would it look like to love peace more than your own rights? What would it look like to love peace more than yourself? He says, first, it's pure, and then it's peace-loving. 
He says, then it's considerate, as in like considering others. St. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. All right, he agrees with James. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That doesn't even make sense to me. How do you do this? Looking to the interests of others before mine, valuing others above me? You know what comes to mind? I imagine, I imagine if like you're, you're working for a promotion, you see your coworker is also working for the same promotion, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to fight to get my coworker this promotion that I want. It doesn't even make sense. Like who would do that? James is losing his mind. Uh, and then he continues on, he says, it's submissive. This is a fun word, because it, it means easily, easily persuaded, like easily moved. It's almost like he's saying, hey, um, this wisdom from heaven, uh, it also kind of comes out kind of like a, a pushover. Like, you should, you should be easily moved around. Like, if somebody wants their way, it's okay, you can submit. It's like not submiss- submitting just to God, not just submitting to authority, just like being overall submissive, kind of being a pushover. And I'm like, that's silly. <laughs> you're, you're confused, James. You don't know how the world works. Uh, and then he, he continues on, and he says, full of mercy. What would, it be look, what would it look like to be so full of mercy, like filled to the brim of mercy, that there's no room for anything but mercy? Like there's no room for, for vengeance because you're filled with mercy. Like there's no room for retaliation because you're just full of mercy. And so somebody offends you and, and what do you do? You show mercy because you don't have room for anything other than mercy. Somebody does evil to you and you repay them with good because you're just so full of mercy. He says it's, it's also filled with good fruit. Filled with good fruit. And this good fruit, it's, uh, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the good deeds that he started with. These good deeds, this idea of being like selfless and sacrificial and, and giving, filled, filled with this good fruit. Things that we're doing, not for ourselves, but for other people. Like giving our hard-earned resources to other people in need. And then he says, impartial. And James actually develops this in another part of the letter, this idea of like not showing favoritism. What he's saying, in a sense, is all of these things that we've just been talking about, we're, we're, we're to be showing them not just to like the people that look like us or are kind to us, like regardless of race, gender, age, socioeconomic class, regardless, regardless of whether or not they deserve it or not, Regardless of whether or not they've, they've been kind to us or not, it's like impartial. We show this carte blanche. It's just to everybody, impartial. And, and lastly, he says, sincere. Tops it all off. You're like, oh, and by the way, you have to like mean it. Like you can't just go through the motions. You can't just like put a mask on and do these things. You know, if, if you want to really kind of look like this heavenly wisdom, you need to mean it. And I'm like... This doesn't, this doesn't make sense, and I'm trying to rack my, my, wrap my mind around it because it just feels so wrong. It feels so counterintuitive. And if you're anything like me, you read through this and you start to say, if I do this, there's no way this could be good. If I do this, I'm going to get taken advantage of. Uh, I'm going to get trampled on. This won't be right, that this will actually lead to like, some sort of injustice, 
being done to me. This, this won't be good. This won't be right. And then, then James finishes up by saying something, which I find awesome and startling at the same time. He says, in verse 18, peacemakers, so the people who are this, who sow in peace, so the people who are this and are doing this, says they reap a harvest of righteousness, a whole harvest of righteousness. Now, the, the Greek word for righteousness is the same word for justice. He's saying, hey, I know this doesn't feel right. I know this feels like just wrong, probably. I know this might feel silly. I know this feels like it might lead to injustice being done, but he's saying it's actually going to lead to a whole harvest of righteousness. A whole harvest. It's almost like he's saying, like, you have these seeds of righteousness and justice in your hands, and you can cling to them, and you can enforce that, you know, nothing's going to happen to these seeds of righteousness and justice. And he's saying, if you let them go, if you let them die, and you let them fall to the ground, it's actually going to reap a whole harvest of righteousness. And, and you look at this, and you read this, and you're like, this is impossible. Nobody could ever do this, except one guy. See, for James, this isn't just a list of, uh, you know, abstract ideas that he kind of pulled out of the air, like, oh, this sounds nice. This, for James, this is what he saw. See, there's only one person who actually ever came from heaven to live on earth. So there's only one person who's ever lived purely in the wisdom of heaven here on earth, and James got to watch this guy live. And, and this man, this man loved peace so much that he sacrificed himself to restore peace between God and humanity. And, and this guy was so considerate that he considered our souls more valuable than his own life. And he was so submissive that he didn't just submit to the Father and he didn't just submit to rulers and authorities. He submitted to death, even death on a cross. He was so full of mercy and good fruit that, that when he came to this earth, he came and he had every right to condemn the world, but he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. And he was so impartial that he didn't just come to save those of us who were like friends of him. He said, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, that is when Christ died for us. And he was so sincere that he didn't just come preaching this message. He came and he proved it by shedding his own blood. See, James, when he's recounting what the wisdom of heaven looks like, he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, this is what I saw wisdom from heaven looks like. And when James saw it for the first time, he thought it was crazy. <laughs> he did. James, who's writing this, is Jesus' half-brother. And when, when Jesus was like living all these things out, James and his other brothers and his mother actually came to Jesus and was like, Jesus, you need to settle down. You're losing your mind. Like, you're out of control. And then, of course, Jesus died. And this part isn't in the Bible, but I, I'm kind of speculating here. I imagine when Jesus died, James wasn't just sad. He was angry. He was probably furious at Jesus because he's watching his mother heartbroken because Jesus was so foolish that he wouldn't just get in line. He wouldn't realize that this isn't how you do things. And now he's just seeing the family broken and in, in despair. But then several days later, Jesus appeared personally to James. And in that moment, James understood for the very first time something so profound. He understood that Jesus never had to be at the center of his own affections because Jesus was at the center of God's affections. 
Jesus didn't have to worry about taking care of himself because he knew the Father was going to take care of him. James realized what is true for Jesus is also true for him, and it's true for you, and it's true for me, that you are at the center of God's affections, and there is so much freedom in this that I don't need, I don't need to look out for me above all else because God is doing that, and he's going to do a much better job than I, can, I could ever do. And that, that gives me the freedom now. I have this heart space where I can actually selflessly love other people, where I can start to love peace and be considerate and be submissive, not worrying I'm going to get trampled on because I know that my Father in heaven is for me. So who can be against me? And sure, sure, like Jesus, it might lead to, to the cross. It might lead to some suffering, but, but it also leads to victory. There might be challenges, and God might not protect us from those challenges, but he will help us conquer those challenges. We will be triumphant. And it will lead to a whole harvest of righteousness. As we wrap up, I just want to give you a, a few tips on saying, like, hey, this is so far off. It's like, it's nearly untouchable, but like, we can at least be moving in this direction of living in the wisdom of heaven. Here's a, here's a few tips. First off, you don't have to be Jesus. Remember this. <laughs> as, you, as you start down this, we, we of course aspire to be like Christ, but if we feel like we need to be like Christ in order to earn God's favor, if we need to be doing this or we're gonna disappoint God and God's gonna not love us anymore, that we just, we won't get anywhere because we, you, you heard the list. Like it's so far off. And if we could be Jesus, we wouldn't need Jesus to be Jesus, right? We wouldn't need that savior. So we just got to keep that in our minds. We're not doing this to earn God's favor. Jesus did that for us. But the second thing is, is we need to, we need to make our hearts an unsafe place for selfishness to reside. So James talks about uh, this idea of harboring selfish ambition and, and bitter envy. And when I think of a harbor, of course, I think of like an actual harbor, a place where boats are safe, but, and maybe this is weird, but I think about like harboring a fugitive or like nations harboring terrorists where it's like there's, there's something bad in there. And it's not that you're necessarily like encouraging it, but you're, you're kind of giving it a safe place to grow. You're giving it a safe place to live. And we need to make our hearts an unsafe place for selfishness to be. And the, the best advice I ever heard about this was from one of my mentors. Uh, this is something that he, he did. It's one of the ways that he kind of practiced selflessness. And he's one of the most selfless people I know. But he, he would say, uh, you know, if, if I ever feel like God is leading me, like the Holy Spirit is prompting me to, like, give somebody money. Like, you know, I'm, God's prompting me to give this person $10. And if I feel in my heart kind of jumping out and saying, you know, in selfishness, like, oh, you can't afford to do that. You need that $10. He would punish the selfishness inside of him, and he would decide to give 20. <laughs> and what he, what he would do is he would, make it, he would make it unsafe for selfishness to rear its ugly head, because when it would pop up, he, you know, he knew that it was going to cost him more. And it, and it practically, he started to learn, he started to learn selflessness. And, and lastly, pray for it. James says at the very beginning of the letter in uh, uh, James 1, it says Philippians, it's a typo. Uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, uh, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Uh, this wisdom is from heaven. 
We have to remember that. We, this wisdom isn't something that we can conjure up in ourselves. This is something that comes from heaven. We need the Holy Spirit to be working in us to be producing this kind of wisdom. And so we need to be on our knees praying for God to give us this wisdom. And it, it might seem like this is so far off that we could live with such selflessness that we could actually get to the point where we're not fixated on what we want God to do for us anymore. We're really more fixated on what God is going to do through us, for others. Like we, we can actually make progress there, but we, we need to ask God for this kind of wisdom. And I am so excited what this might look like as we continue as a body of Christ to, to actually embody Christ to actually live these things out in our world. I think it's going to have a dramatic impact. There's this, uh, this missionary, young missionary, uh, back in the 50s. His name was Jim Elliott. And he, he uh, was going to an unreached people group and he ended up being killed on the shore uh, before he even got there. And, uh, and, and he went passively. He, like, he went, they didn't bring any weapons. They didn't want to hurt these people. They wanted to go in, in peace and they were, they were murdered on the beach before they even got to the people. Eventually, his wife and uh, son and like, some of their friends all go back to the same group of people and witness to these people, and these people come to know the Lord, and, and the whole village is saved, and it's incredible. But Jim Elliott, he, he said something. He wrote this in his journal before, uh, this is five, six years before he died, but he said, he is no fool. He is no fool who will give that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It seems foolish to live this way by the world's standards, but this is a different wisdom. It's the wisdom of heaven, and it is awesome. <laughs> I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up, uh, and as they do, uh, I just want to draw your attention uh, right now, not even, to, not even to what you need to do next, but just draw your attention back to the God who actually did this for you. The Jesus who actually was so peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and, and just so sincere. To, to think about him and what he has done for us and, and really take this to heart, the, the reality that, that you are at the center of God's affections. Let me pray for you. Father, we, we are just in awe of this wisdom that comes from heaven. It's incredible. It is so much more than we could ever imagine. And we are so grateful that you would show us this, this kind of love. That you would not just teach us, but you would show it. You would demonstrate your love for us. And we pray that you will give us this kind of wisdom, that you'll pour out your spirit on each of us, that we might see the world through your eyes, that we, that we might learn to move ourselves out of the center of our hearts, to make room to love others and to love you fully. We ask this in Jesus' name.